Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, August 12th, we are studying Jeremiah chapter 52, verses 1 to 34. In the last chapter of Jeremiah, we hear once again about the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldean army. Yet, later events in Babylon give a hopeful reminder that the Lord will keep his promise of restoration for his people. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. Pastor Agrotowitz serves as Associate Pastor and Headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, welcome back to Sharp Ryan. Thank you, Pastor Apple. A pleasure as always. So, Pastor Agrotowitz, we have the last chapter of the book of Jeremiah. We've made it all the way to chapter 52 today. And as I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to hear about the fall of Jerusalem. Now, Jeremiah has told us about the fall of Jerusalem. Back in chapter 39, he gave us some details about the fall, and he's going to repeat some of those, give some extra ones here. But perhaps a place to start today is why does Jeremiah give us this second recounting of the fall of Jerusalem. Any thoughts as to why he puts this at the end? It validates everything he said. It validates his word. Not that it needs validation, but it does show historically that everything he said, everything he told the people was going to happen, has indeed happened. We should recall in Jeremiah chapter 1, the Lord, you know, calling Jeremiah that chapter, the opening of it, details his call into the prophetic office. And God says, I'm watching over my word to perform it. And I think that's a critical verse. God is watching over his word to perform it. He will execute his word as he sees fit. And now here in 52, we see that the arrogance, the pride, the rebellion, the stiff-necked response has a cost. Uh, this is a big way of Jeremiah saying, you should have listened. And really the Holy Spirit you know, speaking to us, we should listen. That when God says something's going to happen, it happens. And 52 is a historical account of what happens when people ultimately rebel against God and turn their backs on his word and his promises. Uh, one of the, our guests on the series concerning the oracles against the foreign nations, I think it was Pastor Clint Poppy who, who put it this way. He, he reminded me of the book of Amos and how in the book of Amos, it begins with a variety of words from the Lord against various nations, but it's all leading up to words against Israel and Judah, the very people of the Lord. And certainly the book of Jeremiah has been filled with words from the Lord to Judah throughout in the book of Jeremiah, leading up to those oracles against the foreign nations. But now having spent several chapters where the Lord speaks to these various nations around Israel and ultimately Babylon, their great enemy, that Babylon too will be judged, 
to conclude the book like this with chapter 52 is, is almost that Amos-type move where it is a, a reminder here on the back end that, okay, Judah, okay, Israel, don't get a big head. Remember where you've been in all of this. You too have rebelled against the Lord. Judgment has come against you. And the only hope that you have for salvation is found in him and in his word alone. And so I, that, that was another another thought that was brought up to me previously that I, I do find helpful in considering chapter 52 as so what some have called an appendix to the book of Jeremiah, that it's this reminder at the very end to Judah, remember where you've been, remember the the sin, the idolatry that got you here, so that you would hear all these words against the foreign nations, and now you too would be brought to repentance and kept in faith in, in what the Lord's going to do in the restoration, which again, we're going to see a, a bit of, of hope for at the end of, of this text. That was just another thought that was given to me earlier that I thought was was helpful. Especially since Israel and Judah should know better, right? I mean, it's one thing for the pagan nations that didn't have Moses and the prophets compared to Israel and Judah who should know better, and they don't. Here are God's children. They've been given Moses. They've been given the Word. They have his instruction. And yet they, having known all these things, have still turned their back. And it's a call to humility. It's a call to repentance. I mean, chapter 52 should wake us all up from our stupor and... It's a blessed word reminding and teaching us of what happens when we become stiff-necked and we refuse to heed and really take sin seriously and repent over it. So I like, I like Poppy's point and what he said about Amos, how Amos begins with these other nations, and then ultimately the crosshairs go to Israel, and, and that's where the Lord is just very, very hard on his children because ultimately you know, he wants them to heed his warning, see their sin, repent, and turn to him because he is the giver of life, right? He's the one who has redeemed them, and he is the one who is going to save them and rescue them from this life and bring them into the next. So we are going to get that fall of Jerusalem recounted again today in Jeremiah chapter 52 as a way to remind us of the history so that we too would take heed of the warning lest we fall, to listen to the Lord's word, to repent when he calls us to repentance and trust in him for salvation. So Jeremiah 52, beginning at verse 1. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, Things came to, po- to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of king Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night by the way of a gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, while the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains, 
And the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. That's Jeremiah 52, verses 1 to 11. We'll pause there. Uh, Pastor Agradowitz, it's been a while. We were familiar with the name of Zedekiah for quite some time in the book of Jeremiah, but it's been several chapters since we've encountered him now. Uh, remind us who Zedekiah is, what we need to know about his reign, because he's the, the primary figure here at the beginning of the text. Yes, he's the last of the king of Judah's. His dad was Josiah, and we hear that in Jeremiah 20, uh, 37, excuse me, verse 1, he's the son of Josiah. And I think that's interesting because Josiah issued a number of reforms, but it's not uncommon to see a king, a relatively good king, have a son who's not so good. So though his dad did some reforms, and I can't help but think that Zedekiah would have been aware of that, Zedekiah does not follow suit. Now, Zedekiah, there's some other kings that came uh, before him. There was um, Jehoahaz was one of them, Jehoiakim. There's a Jehoiakim with an N instead of an M, and we'll talk about him in a little bit. And then there's Zedekiah. He's 21 when he begins to reign. He reigns 11 years in Jerusalem. So at, at 21, he's he's not uh, not very old. But, you know, we shouldn't rule that out. Again, if he had seen his father reign, we, one would hope that he would have some faithfulness about him. But he's just not a good king for a number of reasons. For a concise description of him, and as you alluded to, he's mentioned a lot in Jeremiah, and one can certainly get a lot of the details in his interactions with Jeremiah and so forth throughout the book of Jeremiah. But if you go to Second Chronicles 36, you get some descriptors of Zedekiah that really highlight how the man is. And the writer of Second Chronicles doesn't really pull any punches. He says in verse 12, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Now, when you see that descriptor of a king in the historical books, that's a good marker uh, that it is what it says. He's an evil person doing some bad things. He did not humble himself before. And then look at this, Jeremiah the prophet. Again, this is Second Chronicles 36. He doesn't humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, which, of course, he should have done. He should have heard the word, repented, but he doesn't. Um, and Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Now, I talked about that on the front end, that Jeremiah is the Lord's mouthpiece. And then verse 13, he rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, last time I was on this program, we talked about Jeremiah 50, and we mentioned Jeremiah 27 and even some other places in Jeremiah where Zedekiah is told to submit to the yoke of Babylon, not rebel, don't get on your high horse, but submit to the yoke. Go along with Babylon for a time. So this rebellion was a really bad move. Jehoiakim did the same thing. He rebelled, and he shouldn't have done that. And it all flows out of Zedekiah's stubbornness, his failure to listen. Um, and such failure, such rebellion, I want to comment, isn't just located in Zedekiah. As the chronicler in chapter 36 continues, he says, um, he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, 
until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. And again, that's Second Chronicles 36, and I wanted to read that passage because that gives us a lot of insights into the man Zedekiah and even the people around him and the level of unfaithfulness that really permeated all strata of Israel's society and culture. You have the officials, you have the priest, and you have the people who have turned their backs on God. That's not to say there wasn't a remnant there, but collectively speaking, generally speaking, the people have fallen into unbelief, and the Lord says it, or it says here, until there was no remedy. It's as if there's just nothing at this point to do but fulfill what I have spoken, and the Lord will do that. He will, uh, you know, burn the temple, and we'll get more into that in a bit. But hopefully that gives us some indication and insights into Zedekiah, a king that should have listened, he didn't, and the consequences are nothing short of disastrous. Mm. I appreciate the journey there into Second Chronicles 36, because as you said, the, the chronicler does not pull any punches in the way that he describes Zedekiah or the people around him. And thinking back on some of the conversations I had about Zedekiah in the book of Jeremiah, there are moments where you, you start to feel sorry for him a little bit and, and feel like he's really close. There, there's conversations that he'll have with Jeremiah privately where you get the sense that he wants to listen to Jeremiah, he wants to believe Jeremiah, and maybe even do what Jeremiah says in terms of submitting to Babylon and going ahead and surrendering. But in the end, he doesn't. He refuses to listen to the word of the Lord. He listens instead to these advisors who are around him who to surrender to Babylon would be unthinkable for them. And so he he doesn't. He shows himself to be evil in that sense because he does not listen to the word of the Lord. He rebels against that. And, and that is the final judgment for Zedekiah, why the chronicler, why you have here in Jeremiah 52, in 2 Kings as well, that he does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and that's who Zedekiah is. And then kind of as the, the tipping point to top it all off, you know, in verse 3 of our text in Jeremiah 52, oh, and by the way, Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon, as if it's not enough to rebel against the king over all, Yahweh. Now he's going to go ahead and rebel against the king who's pretty much the world superpower at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. So he rebels, and and that's where the text continues into the siege of Jerusalem, which is a, yeah. a key event. What what do we find out about the siege of Jerusalem? Help us to, and Pastor Gratis, help us to get a feel for that, because I think, you know, we know that this is an important event in biblical history, but I think sometimes we have a hard time fully appreciating just how awful this siege was and how how much it really affected the Judahites living there at the time. Yeah, I like that question, and I was just, you know, chuckling a little bit when you were talking about, and it, it's not a laughing matter, but it's just so preposterous to me to look at this, try to put my myself in the shoes of Zedekiah. Why in the world would you rebel against Babylon? I mean, are you that foolish that you do not know how powerful that that army and that nation is? But... Sin makes us stupid. Sin makes us do stupid things. And in Second Chronicles 36, the root problem, he is stiff-necked, hard-hardened, he's not listening, sin is ruling over him, and he does something foolish like he rebels. Okay, moving on to the siege. All right, so if I've done my math right, um, okay, it's in the ninth year, in the tenth month, when the siege begins. When Nebuchadnezzar, he has had enough, all right? So he's not just going to... Uh, 
stay in his capital at Riblah, but he comes out with all his army against Jerusalem, and he lays siege to it. And um, the city is besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. So over a year, this siege takes place. And the thing about siege warfare that we, we have to keep in mind, it's going to take time, but it's really cost-effective. You're the one doing the siege, because all you really have to do is surround the city or at least block off any key points. You can stop up their water supply, stop food from going in, and just wait them out. You're not wasting arrows and spears and men. You can just block it off and wait. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do. He's not a dummy. He knows how to wage war. And then there's a famine that gets extremely severe until this line says there was no food for the people of the land. So this is starvation. There is no water. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we really are. Uh, temporally speaking, in the land of milk and honey. I mean, we've got pantries that are still full. We can go to the grocery store. Okay, some shelves, you know, maybe a little lighter than what is typical because of the, the pandemic and so forth. But look, none of us are starving. There's still plenty of food around. You know, generally speaking, we're all doing just fine in that area. I had a great lunch today, and now I'm back. But to be in Jerusalem at this time, you are under siege. You're, you have no food. You have no water. And then, you know, over the wall, there's this gigantic, powerful army. And so even psychologically, this was just a horrific moment for the people of Israel. And then um, a breach made in the city, and the men of war, it says they fled. So the very people who are supposed to protect take off, and the king the great king whose decisions have played a part in all of this, he tries to get away as well. So if you're just a typical civilian of Israel, you're really in some trouble here, because even not only do you not have sustenance to live by, the very people who are supposed to protect you, ah, they're gone, the king is gone, and that, that's you know the telltale sign. This city really is lost at this point when even the king believes, you know, he can't stay any longer. He's going to save his own skin. He takes off, but the Chaldeans, you know, they, they know desert warfare. They catch up with him. The king loses his army. And interesting, it says he's, he's caught in the plains of Jericho. And, of course, we think about Jericho. I think that's an interesting word, of course, because of Joshua and Jericho, and that whole scene when the pagan stronghold of Jericho falls, you see Zedekiah caught in these very plains, and he's going to fall again. And of course, his behavior and what you've seen described about him uh, give every indication that this man does not believe in the Holy Word of God, and he's dying in the plains of Jericho, not dying, but I should say he's captured by the Babylonians on the plains of Jericho, um, which really is the beginning of death in a certain respect. They take out his eyes, and they slaughter his children before him. And the text does say, um, to be clear, he is bound in chains. And we'll talk about binding and loosing when we get to Jehoiakim. They take him to Babylon, and he says, it says here, the Holy Word of God says, he's in prison until the day that he dies. So really a sad end to the reign of Zedekiah. Well, I mean, sad and, and, and very horrific, just the, the way that he is put to death, that the, the very last thing he sees before he loses his eyes is to see his own sons killed and to see his officials killed. I mean, just to, to take away 
any last bit of hope that Zedekiah might have had. I mean, just, you know, it, it, again, Zedekiah is, is this a very tragic figure in his unbelief. You know, I mean, it seems like every time he's, he's hoping against what Jeremiah has told him, you need to surrender. No, I'm going to get away this time. And and here at the very end, it's it's all taken away from him, his eyes included. And I mean, the, the text, it you know, it's just a, a terrible end because he ends up in prison in Babylon till the day of his death. He dies. I mean, it's just a, like if Jeremiah were to end there, that would be a, a completely hopeless ending. And and one thing that I, I don't think we've we've talked about yet, Pastor Grotus, which may be worth pointing out here, is that particularly for the people of Judah and Jerusalem, the death of King Zedekiah, that's the line of David. And, and so to have the Davidic king slaughtered in this w- way, or well, put his eyes put out and taken captive in this way, and then there's no Davidic king left in Jerusalem at this point, that's a really strong blow to their psyche as well, I think. Uh, but to be sure, yes, because that was the promise, right? The line would continue, and to their senses and eyes, well, what hope do we have at this point? Okay, uh, following the line, the line goes to Josiah, Zedekiah is one of uh, Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim is already out of the picture, Jehoahaz is already out of the picture. Jehoiakim, he's out of the picture. He's already been taken into captivity, but he's going to make an appearance at the end of Jeremiah 52. I'm going to put off talking about him. But to your point, at that moment in time, with Zedekiah in prison, yes, any symbol of hope, you know, I see none of it at this point. When he's taken away by Babylon, thrown into prison, and then after this, when we hear about him being in prison until his death, now a real spiritual, the spiritual heartbeat, so to speak, at least physically speaking, the great temple, mm. Nebuchadnezzar is going to, to, to raise that to the ground. It's going to be a smoldering pile of rubble. So maybe we want to get into that a little bit. Yeah, let's keep reading here. We're picking up again in Jeremiah chapter 52, now at verse 12. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poorest of the people and the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the artisans. But Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the basins, and the dishes for incense, and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, also the small bowls and the fire pans and the basins and the pots, and the lampstands and the dishes for incense, and the bowls for drink offerings. What was of gold the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was of silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea, the twelve bronze bowls that were under the sea, and the stands which Solomon the king had made for the house of the Lord, The bronze of all these things was beyond weight. As for the pillars, the height of the one pillar was 18 cubits. Its circumference was 12 cubits, and its thickness was four fingers, and it was hollow. 
On it was a capital of bronze. The height of the one capital was five cubits. A network and pomegranates, all of bronze, were around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with pomegranates. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides. All the pomegranates were 100 upon the network all around. That takes us through verse 23 of Jeremiah chapter 52. Pastor Argratis, we've got just about two minutes here before the break, so we can get started on this conversation. We'll, we'll save the, the conversation about the vessels that are all mentioned there for the other side of the break, but at least as we get started, I mean, the destruction that comes when Nebuchadnezzar shows up, I mean, we've, we've seen a bunch of destruction, but now it's just like everything is burned to the ground, it sounds like. Any hope of going and worshiping and receiving spiritual aid visually speaking, is gone. The very heartbeat of the worship life of Judah is taken away. And it's it's tremendously sad when you juxtapose this with Solomon building this temple. And a lot of letters are spent by the Holy Spirit describing the construction of this grandiose, wonderful, glorious temple, a temple in which God promised to be for his people just a central point of worship that's taken away. Um, it, it's like you can imagine being in an area where there is no church. There's no place to go. I think about even here at, at Grace Lutheran how, you know, so many people, this is their, their home away from home. I mean, the place where they want to be. Imagine that was just taken away, and there's just no place to go and receive what the Lord has given. That's what the Israelites are facing right here. This uh, combined with the loss of their king, it again, visually, it's a hopeless situation. They are at zero at this point because of Babylon coming in and doing what the Lord had foretold. He had told them this is going to happen. They were going to lose their land. Uh, going all the way back to Leviticus, shortly before this interview commenced, I was reading Leviticus, where God promised the people um, in Leviticus chapter 20, you know, quite simply, Keep my statutes, keep my word, or the land will, he uses this word, vomit. It will vomit you out. Yes, and of course that comes to pass. Right, and that, that is what's happening here in Jeremiah chapter 52. We'll pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron. We're talking with Pastor Orion Agrotowitz this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Hi, this is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Are you an investor looking to support the bold and loving work of LCMS churches? Is your church or organization ready to do bold and loving work? This year, we have a ripe opportunity to bring Christ to a hurting world. Discover the role you can play in this great work. Call 800-843-5233 or visit lcef.org. That's 800-843-5233, lcef.org. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, August 12th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 52, verses 1 to 34 with Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. He's associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, prior to the break, we got started talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the city, particularly the, the temple. In the midst of that, 
in verses 15 and 16, there's a note on some of the people that were taken captive into Babylon and some who were left. Any thoughts on the the people Nebuchadnezzar chose to take with him and who he chose to leave there in Judah? Yeah, well, one, I mean, he can be selective. He can take who he wants to take. It says here he takes the uh, the artisans, the people who are the artistic people who know how to make stuff. Um, the text reads the poorest of the people, some of the poorest of the people, and the rest of the people who were left in the city, okay, he carries those away. And also, this is an interesting line, the deserters who had deserted the king of Babylon. So it sounds like to me um, there were some who were trying to desert and defect to Babylon, but they get taken as well. Then, of course, the artisans. The the poorest of the land, some of them are left to be vine dressers and even plowmen to keep taking care of the land. So, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is not a dummy. He knows you're going to need to leave some people behind just to kind of keep the land up. But he can be selective. I mean, his people are there for his take, and he can plunder who he wishes. And I think you see that coming through this text. It's, I mean, these people have been given over to Babylon now, and now he can pick and choose. You will come you will stay and a real dreadful situation to be in because if you're the people you don't know are you the one who now has to go to babylon or are you going to stay in the state of affairs right now you stay in israel but what's left at this point so it's 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 kind of a lose-lose situation if you are an israelite where are you going to go are you going to be taken are you going to stay because if you go to babylon that's a foreign country that's not good if you're a jew but if you stay, you're you're really you're in the ash heap, so to speak. It's rubble and decimation. Everything that you saw and loved about Jerusalem is now going to be in shambles. So, a difficult spot to be sure. Uh, one of the commentaries that I consulted on uh, mentioned, you know, that talk of the poorest people who are left. We know from earlier in the book of Jeremiah when he from from this part in earlier in Jeremiah 39. Jeremiah moves into some history that teaches us about what happened there in Judah. And there were some people around who seem of some importance, Gedaliah being among them, and there were some other commanders of, of various military groups, it seems, that that get left. And yet we know how that ends. That that ends with the people's mm-hmm. ultimate rebellion. They refuse to listen to the word of the Lord. They flee to Egypt and they meet their end there. And so th- this commentator suggested that this, you know, the poorest of the land as the only ones mentioned here, is a reminder of what Jeremiah has said previously, that the future hope for the people of God does not lie, at least at this moment, there in the land of Judah, but it actually lies with those who are taken to Babylon. You know, going back to that very famous chapter in Jeremiah, chapter 29, the hopes and the plans that the Lord has for his people are in Babylon. That's where he's going to be gracious to them and ultimately going to restore them from Babylon. And so perhaps, you know, this mention here of the people Nebuchadnezzar takes and the people he leaves is just a, a call back to that as, as one more pointer toward what Jeremiah has already said. The hope for God's people, as surprising as it sounds, actually lies in Babylon and not in Judah. You know, I had not thought about that, honestly. I think it's a very interesting point that God is going to, even in, in, in Babylon, we know by this point, is going to be leveled, right? I mean, how many prophecies, how much time has Jeremiah spent on Babylon going away? And yet, from the rubble even at Babylon, God knows his people, and he can work through those people to bring them back, to restore. And Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, we talked about this last time, those books are going to record 
the return of those people. And then we get to see all the work that they do, rebuilding, getting the walls back up, and all those sorts of things. And God certainly being at work through them to rebuild, restructure, and get things back on track. Now, a lot of this text deals with a listing, almost an inventory of sorts, of things from the temple, these various holy vessels that the Chaldeans took and plundered from that temple. And we don't have time, and really the purpose of this text isn't to detail what those various items are. Previously on Sharper Iron, this has been probably about over a year ago, we went through the book of Exodus and we talked about a number of these things that are mentioned when they were built for the tabernacle, the predecessor to the temple. So if if you're interested in finding out more about particular items in this list, check those out. Take a look in the book of Exodus and in 1 Kings as well, where these items are built for the tabernacle and the temple. But for our purposes today, this list that's here, at least a couple things I think that stand out as an overall impression. One, one as, as I'm reading this, is the first thing that comes, I think, very clearly is that the Chaldeans, they go into the temple of the Lord before they're going to, you know, raise it and ransack it. They look at all these things there, and they see value. They see, essentially, money. Look at all this bronze. Oh, and there's some gold and silver as well. Let's take it. They completely miss the holy purpose of, of what this temple is supposed to be, of what these vessels are to be used for. All they see is is precious metals that they can take and, you know, I mean, it builds their wealth, I guess. Which, I mean, it strikes me, that I think goes hand in hand with some of the things we've we've read about Babylon in the previous chapters in their, in their pride, in their arrogance, and ultimately their idolatry. The way they treat these holy things of the Lord, although they are at this moment doing the Lord's work in bringing judgment, yet they are still rebelling against his will in the way that they treat these holy things of the Lord. There is zero respect for the holy temple and the holy things in the temple. And you see that by the way the Babylonians are treating these things. This is money, money, money. This is the the empire, the army, that comes to pillage and destroy, and they're going to do just that. They're taking away the vessels, the gold, the silver, the bronze. I mean, those precious metals are mentioned, you know, all over the place in this section and even elsewhere at the building of the temple. I mean, just so much, so much precious metals were invested in the construction of this temple. It's it's really quite amazing when you read about Solomon building this. Well, now it's all going away. And this does, once again, show you a characteristic of Babylon uh, they they are no respecters of God, and they're displaying that right here when they have no qualms walking into a temple and just tearing down the temple, taking what they want, and they they see value in it. This is going to help to their wealth to plunder and take these these precious things. Now, I think if you look on Israel's side and you see all these things going, um, yes, that that's bad and that is sad, and it's worth lamenting. However, given the sinful state. You know, I recall Amos. That That is a prophetic book you mentioned earlier, but it's one I like a lot. And when you read Amos, you see in that book that even the priests are corrupt. Even the priests have issues and problems. A point also talked about in Second Chronicles 36, when the chronicler mentions that officers of the priest and people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful. So they have not, that is evidence showing they have not faithfully used these holy things, and God's taken it away from them. And he's using the Babylonians to do it, and the Babylonians are sinning as well. 
uh, a point we made last time. Though the Babylonians are God, God's called servants to execute his justice on the people, they too shall be held accountable for their sins against the Most High God. The listing of the the items here, you know, I mean, and, and I, I appreciate what you said about that the people of Judah, as we've seen them in the book of Jeremiah, have not shown themselves to really care all that much about the temple and its holy vessels for the true purpose that God gave them. They, they've liked the fact that the temple's there as some sort of external security blanket, they think. You know, they, they, Jeremiah very famously preached against the temple in the sense that the people were saying, oh, look, there's the temple, we're okay, although they had absolutely no faith in the God who dwelled there in the temple. And so, I mean, I appreciate that. At the same time, when you read this list, it does come across, at least in the context in which it's given here at the end of the book of Jeremiah, as as some lamenting and mourning, as, as maybe almost this wake-up call that the people— start to have realized what they've lost in losing the temple and and just taking stock of all of the items which God had given for holy purposes that have now been desecrated, taken away by these pagan Babylonians, there does seem to be that that sadness and lamenting as the list goes on and, and items get described, some in greater detail than others, particularly toward the end of the list. There's a couple of, of items that are described in greater detail. There does seem to be that that character of a lament and sadness, thinking about what they had lost. Now it's too late, I suppose, but th- but there is that that character to it. At least that's the way the text stri- strikes me in the context at the end of the book of Jeremiah. Yeah, and it should make a Christian reader lament too, um, because we've seen just how much importance the Lord placed upon this temple. We know David wanted to build it, but he had been a man of war. He had shed blood. Solomon, his son, is going to build this temple. Uh, I want to go back a little to Second Chronicles 36, since we're talking about the people and their, their response and even their, their culpability in this. And one critical line, Second Chronicles 36, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. And I wonder, too, if a viable translation couldn't be defiled or even profaned. Um, I didn't look at the Hebrew right there. But God made something holy, and the people defiled it and polluted it by their unfaithfulness. So having defiled this holy place, not treating it the way it should have been treated, the Lord is taking away these vessels and all these things, removing, removing his holiness from their midst, removing himself from their midst, again, always with that critical goal that they would repent, but I do think we need to see the departure of these vessels is, in, in many ways, the departure of God casting off his people for a time, as he said he would do, because of their, their unrepentant attitudes and their unfaithfulness. They did not take seriously the things that he had been given them. And so now they're going to do without for a while. And, you know, and I think, you know, we can make so many parallels to our own nation today when we get on the topic of church attendance. Now, how many churches have you been aware of where you look on the rolls and you see a lot of people, uh, you know, two, three hundred people on the rolls, on the books, and yet you count how many are in worship on Sunday morning, and it's extremely small. Here we have a glorious proclamation every Sunday. We're giving out the Word, we're giving out the sacraments, and it is heartbreaking 
to hear of churches who have just real struggles in church attendance, real struggles to get offerings, and so many people in this wealthy, wealthy nation not caring one bit about the things God is giving them. But they stay away, they don't come, and we're seeing a very similar thing. Holiness is being given, people don't care, and my goodness, uh, I, you know, I am no prophet, I don't know what the Lord is going to do, but if there's anything we learn from the, the lockdowns and pandemics is maybe a taste for some of us, maybe a taste of what it's like to not be able to go and worship um, because the doors are shut for whatever reason. I, it, it, it needs to, uh, to rouse us from our stupor, to repent of our own sin, and most importantly, to my point, not take for granted the holy things of God that he is giving, and he's giving it abundantly for now, and we should take advantage of it. Uh, what, what you were just saying there, Pastor Grotto, it reminds me again of the prophet Amos, who is the one who talks about the famine of the Lord's Word, and, and what, a, what a terrifying thing that is. You know, I mean, in this, in this text, we've got the, the city running out of food. Here we've got a famine now of the holy things of God, you know, the, the spiritual reality that mirrors that physical reality of the, of the food that they've lost. Now they're losing the spirituality. Again, I mean, what a, what a horrible thing. And, and like you said, hopefully a wake-up call for us today not to take these things for granted, to cherish them while we have them, and to, you know, to run to those holy things of God where they are being given so that we might receive the gifts that he, he wants us to have. Uh, before we move on from this, this section of the, of the various items in the temple, you were mentioning during the break that you want to talk to me about pomegranates. So I, I like pomegranates, Pastor Grotowitz. Uh, what is, what is, why are the pomegranates mentioned here? Why is that important in the Old Testament? Well, I was curious because it just kept showing up. And so, I mean, any hearer of this, this, this program can do this in their English Bibles, even if they don't know Hebrew. Just, just find some Bible software do a word search of a word, and just see what you come up with. And so this word shows up the most in Exodus. And you were talking earlier about the, the vessels and stuff in the temple. Well, the pomegranates were associated with the, um, the robes of Aaron. So you're seeing these priestly garments and these, these pomegranates being, um, you know, the, being woven into it. And uh, I should have wrote down the reference, but... Um, it's in Exodus. Um, uh, I didn't write it down, but it does show up the most in in that book. I think it's Exodus twenty nine thirty three was one, but it's in a lot of places there. And so I was thinking about well, these 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 pomegranates are being attached to the garments for Aaron. You think about priests, you think about worship, and you see these pomegranates here being taken away. I think this just buttresses the point I was making. The worship life is taken away. The any sort of priestly function for the people is being taken away. Ultimately, because God is pulling away, or, or maybe more accurately, casting off His people because of their unfaithfulness. So uh, I wanted to say that pomegranates also show up. The, the second book where it occurs the most is one that I, I'm not super familiar with. Is the Song of Solomon, hmm. but it does show up there quite a bit too. And and there must be something about it. In this time where pomegranates just, it, I'm taking a guess here, but it just sounds like this symbolized life and vitality, and eating this fresh fruit just really meant a lot if you could get it. And I suppose, too, in a desert wilderness, you know, pomegranates are a little hard to come by. Um, 
I know my, my father-in-law had a pomegranate tree at one time, and he'd have people stop wanting pomegranates. I don't know how much they cost in the grocery store. They're not my favorite fruit, but I've heard they're very good for you. So maybe a pomegranate expert can correct me or, or tell me, you know, uh, what they're good for regarding the body. But uh, nevertheless, in Holy Scripture, they do play a part. Here, I think, you know, again, it's more of this, this aspect attached to worship, God serving his people, all these things now being removed because of, of course, Israel's behavior and attitude towards him. And the text continues, and it doesn't get better for a moment until it does become hopeful toward the end. So we'll read the rest of Jeremiah 52 this morning. We're picking up now at verse 24. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war and seven men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land, who were found in the midst of the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. This is the number of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive. In the seventh year, 3,023 Judeans. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem 832 persons. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Judeans 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him, and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily need, until the day of his death as long as he lived. That's through the end of the book of Jeremiah. That was chapter 52, verses 24 through 34. So, Pastor Agrada, it's just a, a few more notes there, t- verses 24 through 30. Give us kind of the, the last bit of destruction that's re- wreaked there in the land of Judah. More people are put to death, important people are put to death, and then you get the number of, of Judeans that were carried away in three different exiles. Any, any thoughts on those verses briefly before sure. we move into the, the hopeful part at the end? Yeah, right. Yeah, I have some thoughts. One, Zephaniah, the second priest. There is more than one Zephaniah mentioned in the Bible. And, you know, when I first saw that, I thought it might be the writer of Zephaniah, the book. And it, and it just might be here he's called Zephaniah, the second priest. There is another Zephaniah, the son of Messiah. And he's mentioned in Jeremiah 29, 25, and Jeremiah 21, verse 1. Um, there he's called the priest. Here he's called the second priest. So it might possibly be the Zephaniah who wrote the prophetic book, and he was a contemporary with Jeremiah. Uh, do we know with 100% certainty? I don't think so, but that is interesting to think about. And then all the who's who, the important people. Again, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he's not a foolish king, but he's going to keep who he wants to keep, leaving the land who he wants to leave. 
Um, the people who can benefit him, fine. Those who are a threat to him, he's going to get rid of him. And I think that's what you're seeing here. Um, the people, for example, an officer had been in command of the men of war. Well, he's done. Seven men on the king's council, uh, they're done. People who can, they know how to, to, to motivate, muster the people. They could be influential. They can turn them against Nebuchadnezzar. All these are going to end, and the king of Babylon, of course, is going to do it. But then you see, yes, these um, different times or groups of people are brought out of Israel. Uh, and the, the years, seventh year, 18th year, 23rd year, this is a long time to deal with this guy, at least 20, 23 years having to deal with this horrific, wicked king. And I think that's an important point, too, uh, to bear out. This isn't a flash-in-the-pan suffering the nation of Israel is going through, but at least 23 years of having to deal with a ruthless king who not only has decimated and raised your holy temple, but he's removed people from the land, destroyed your king Zedekiah, he's taken, dies in prison, and now for 23 years having to deal with him, I think it just kind of it keeps pouring it on just how bad this suffering is. And, you know, I want to I want to stress this point. The people have no one to blame but themselves. Now, with that said, shall we go into 31? Yes, I think so. We've got about five minutes, and we've been kind of hinting at this the whole time as these being hopeful verses. Use this, this last section to help us wrap up with these last five minutes. You betcha. Okay, so Jehoiakim. I used to be puzzled by this because Jehoiakim doesn't get a lot of press in Second uh, Kings or in Second Chronicles. He didn't do anything worthy of highlighting. He certainly is towards the end of things. He is the king before um, Zedekiah. But what he does do that is interesting is that where Jehoiakim and Zedekiah rebel, Jehoahaz, he is taken... Um, with uh, Pharaoh of Necho in Egypt, that's kind of a different story. But Jehoiakim gives himself up. He gives himself up over to the king of Babylon, and that's actually in 2 Kings 24:12. The king of Babylon takes him, still carries off uh, even treasures right there from the king's house, and um, that's all listed right there. But by giving himself up of these latter kings, he's at the very least the closest one to kind of giving into Babylon, which Recall, that's what, we, that's what Jeremiah instructed the king Zedekiah to do, submit to the yoke. Well, Jehoiakim seems to do that, because he just gives himself in, doesn't fight, doesn't rebel, and now he reemerges in the 37th year of his exile. Now, Jehoiakim, as I mentioned earlier, um, he is the son of Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim is the son of Josiah. And, and this does take, uh, you know, it's kind of follow the bouncy ball when you're looking at this. But the reason why Jehoiakim is important, he is also mentioned by the chronicler of um, being the, the, the royal line. And it's going to be, ultimately, the royal line is going to pass from Josiah to uh, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim. And his name is mentioned also in, and this is hugely important, Matthew chapter 1. What's in Matthew 1? The great genealogy that is uh, teaching us Christ and where he came from, that physical line. So it is not through the line, the royal line does not go through Zedekiah. It's going to go through Jehoiakim. Even though Zedekiah is from Josiah, 
the genealogies in the Bible show us that Christ, his line, is going to be traced through Jehoiakim. Okay, that's fine. Here he is, um, maybe resurrected is a strong word, but he's brought out of prison, he's treated kindly, and it says he put off his prison garments. He dines regularly at the king's table, gets an allowance until the day of his death, as long as he lived, radically different from Zedekiah's end. Um, so we do see a restorative principle here, uh, one who is in prison, brought back, one who is in exile, but towards the end of his life, he gets some good things. And this is symbolizing, indicating, hinting toward the restoration that's ultimately going to befall God's people in Israel. But even more so than that, this idea of putting off prison garments, we could talk a long time, I know we're almost out of time, but of the garments we have in Christ, baptized into him, covering our own sinful selves, and by discussing and believing in that, we know we are liberated from the bondage of sin and a given life in our Lord Jesus. So there's a lot of stuff right there in Jehoiakim. When you start peeling back the layers and you see his name again show up in Matthew chapter 1, the New Testament, a king that did some evil things, but he did submit to Babylon, he is restored at the end. And again, for his name to show up in Matthew, that, that's a big deal. And of course, that genealogy telling us about Christ, his line, and of course, from there, uh, the rest is history, as they say. For sure, and I think just to to put a a, a final point on that, that you know, with all of this destruction, the, the seeming end of the line of David, with with all that horror of Zedekiah, the destruction of the temple, all of all of these things, that how is God going to keep His promises that He's made to His people? That's how this book ends on a hopeful note, is that, well, here is Jehoiakim, and through him, the Lord is going to sustain that promise to send the Christ into the world. That name shows up, Jeconiah, in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. It is here that the Lord is keeping his promise, even in all this destruction. He is faithful to send his Savior into the world. Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz is the associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 52, verses 1 to 34. Pastor Grotowitz, thanks for being our guest today. I had a great time. Thank you, Pastor Apple. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Tomorrow we will be beginning a series on the Book of Lamentations. Please send any questions ahead of time to KFUO at KFUO.org or use the open mic feature on the app. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.